Stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. The text will be out of Philippians 2, 1 through 11. <clears throat> so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, any participation in, the, in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on, on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Powerful, powerful text of Scripture. Thank you, Aiden, for reading that. It's his 18th birthday today, and so I wanted him to read the scripture. We've been in a series of very important messages entitled, This is Our Story, where we're examining the great story of redemption, God's story, which answers all of the deepest questions of human existence. Life's most important questions, questions like this, where did we come from? You know, what's our origin? Where do we come from? Number two, where, why are we here? You know, it's been said that two most important days in your life is the day you're born and the day you find out why. A lot of people never have that second day. Uh, I was part of an online forum a few years ago where they said you could ask God any question, what would it be? And the number one question that was asked over and over and over again was, why am I here? People had a lack of purpose, and they wanted to know, why are we here? Questions like, who are we? What's our identity? And where are we going? Our destiny. And sadly, our culture has lost the great story. And therefore, we are seeing in our culture a dramatic loss of hope, a loss of meaning, a loss of purpose. Suicidal ideation is up through the roof during this pandemic. You can just go to the CDC website and you can see the numbers. It's crazy how high what's going on with suicide in our culture. We are, as Alistair Begg has said, our culture is one with everything to live with, but nothing to live for. We have everything to live with. We're the most technologically advanced society in history. We're one of the wealthiest society in the history of the world. We have everything to live with and nothing to live for. Why? Because we've lost the great story. The great story that gives meaning to our lives. See, all of our little stories find meaning in the bigger story of the gospel. I find it fascinating that when God wanted to communicate truth in the scripture, he, he very often uses story. I mean, a large part of the Bible is, is a story. It's narrative. And, and the parts that aren't story, they find their context and their meaning in the larger story. Jonathan Pennington wrote a book, I just read it this last week, called Jesus the Great Philosopher. Uh, subtitled Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life, he points out in the book that over 35% of Jesus' teaching in the gospel is parables. Jesus told stories. He told a lot of stories. And if you include that narrative elements and the story elements of the rest of his teaching, it's even higher than 35%. So Jesus loved to tell stories because he knew that story is what makes sense of our experience. 
Story is one of the most efficient ways to communicate truth. In fact, in a recent studies in neuroscience, there seems to be a demonstration that storytelling is, is the only form of communication that actually forces our brains to focus and pay attention. It's, it, it's some really interesting uh, research by Paul Zach. You can look it up, not right now, later. Um, uh, the, just Google the neuroscience of narrative. And what it comes down to is this. We are literally neurologically wired for story. As one scholar put it, uh, there have been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there have been no societies that did not tell stories. Now here's the point. God knew that story was integral into how we live and how we do life, and he has communicated his truth, and he's communicated himself through the story of the gospel. So we desperately need to be reminded of the great story. Because if you forget your story, you're going to misinterpret things that happen in your life. If you don't know your role in the story, I mean, we're going to miss out on things God is saying. We're going to miss out on things that God is doing if we don't know the story and thus know our place in the story. So let me catch you up on where we've been in the last few weeks. In episode one, that was the first week, we, we, it was called Long Story Short, and we looked at the overarching narrative uh, in four epics from beginning to end, starting with Trinity and ending with the, the, the new heavens and the new earth. Episode two was entitled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which was Genesis 1 to 3. The good was God. God is good. Creation, he said, was good. The bad was the fall, and the ugly is how we've been dealing with it ever since. Episode three was entitled The Hope of Nations, where uh, Kevin Wu got up and spoke about the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. And we learned in that story that God's heart has always been for the nations. He's always had a heart. It wasn't just, I'm going to bless Abraham for your sake. No, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I will make you a blessing. And we share in that covenant, which we got reminded of last week in the in this, uh, message that Dad did on the covenants, which as he was preaching, I realized, I gave him, Dad, I gave you an impossible task. I'm sorry, I apologize. I, to, to teach all the covenants in one message, come on. Uh, but, you know, in the hands of a lesser dude, we, we should have been nervous. But you did great. Today, we get to the part of the story where God stops sending emissaries and representatives, and he just comes himself. We call it the incarnation. That incomprehensible, unfathomable reality that God became a man in order to pursue us to win our salvation. So here's today's question. What if God were one of us? What if God was one of us? Tell me the truth. How many of you heard that Joan Osborne song from the mid-90s in your head before I even sort of, um, yeah, like over half of you? That song came out in 1995, made top 40 by November of 95, and I brought it up for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, Joan Osborne is from Anchorage, just like, not Anchorage, Alaska, Anchorage, Kentucky, like right down the road. Uh, she graduated from Wagner High School. I know I got some Wagner High School graduates here, right? A few, the, yes, Kevin Wu, I know, the, basically the whole Hydes clan graduated, I think, from Wagner. Wagner's produced a lot of fine talent. She was raised Roman Catholic, but uh, she turned away from that, and when she was interviewed after this song, um, she said her religion was that, and I quote, there is a spiritual space inside of me. That was kind of the sum total. And basically, she didn't believe that God did become one of us. 
And then the next year, that was 95, and the next year, 96, Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince, because he had, you know, that whole thing with the contract with Warner Brothers, and then he became a symbol, you know. Um, he re-recorded it, but he changed one of the lines. Instead of saying, what if God were one of us, just a slob like one of us, he said, just a slave like one of us. And that year, his son died, and he turned to become a Jehovah's Witness, and there's reports of him actually going door to door, handing out the watchtower. Can you imagine? Knock on your door. It's Prince with cultic literature. I mean, like, this. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Both Joan Osborne and Prince denied in very different ways. Osborne had this vague spirituality. You know, there's a spiritual place inside of me. Prince was part of a cult that said that Jesus wasn't actually God. They both denied that God, while remaining God, had become human in the incarnation. And here's what I want you to see. If you don't have a true incarnation, you don't have the gospel. This is a key part of the story. So let's look at the text that, that Aiden read. He read verses 1 to 11. I'm just going to read verses 5 to 11. This is one of the most majestic passages in the entire New Testament. I'm not going to be able to do it justice today. Uh, but to just unpack it a little bit, I'm going to have to shift into teacher mode. You know, like sometimes we're in exhorter, encourager mode. You know, it's like, woohoo! Go! New life! You know, it's like cheerleader thing. But this is going to be less that today and more in teacher mode. Let's look at the text again. If you have your Bibles, look at it. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That right there is enough to chew on for the rest of your life. Who being in very nature God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what he's saying. Your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as Jesus' attitude. Now, Aiden, when he read the text, read out of the ESV, which says not attitude but mind. In fact, Paul uses that word three times before you get to verse 5. Thus, what he's saying is the incarnation, the fact that God became a man should change your mind. It should change how you think. It should change your attitude. In other words, the incarnation, the fact that God became a man, should radically and practically affect how you live this day and every other day. You say, well, well how is that? How does the incarnation affect my attitude, how affect how I think? Well, look at the flow of the text here. The, the, the text has, has kind of a flow that has kind of four movements in it. It, is, it starts with this. Jesus was God. God became man or human. Jesus humbled himself. And Jesus is Lord. Okay, that's the flow of the text. And the question is, how does that change our mind or shape our attitude or our thinking? Well, let's just look at them real quick. Number one, Jesus was God. This is one of the clearest texts in the entire Bible that claims that Jesus was God incarnate. I mean, look at verse 6. Being in very nature God. So here's the deal. I'm not going to debate this this morning. I'm just affirming what the Bible says. Jesus was God. 
By the way, a, a lot of really more liberal scholars will say, you know, Jesus was more like a lazy, what we know now as a legend. You know, there was a Jesus. He did some cool things. But the, the further the distance of time got away from, uh, you know, when he lived, uh, the further the legend began to grow. And the further it got away from Jerusalem, the legend began to grow because of geography and time, because the Gospels weren't written until much later in the first century. But this is Philippians. Paul, all of Paul's letters were written between 20 and 30 years after the resurrection, and he's quoting, many scholars think, that this text in verses 6 to 11 is actually a hymn or a poem that the early church sang in worship. So he's quoting something that has been around for years. So right after Jesus was alive and he was raised and ascended into heaven, his followers were seeing him as God very early on. You go, okay, all right, so, so Jesus is God, but wait, how does, that affect my th- how does that affect my attitude? Glad you asked. Here's some thoughts right out of the text, all right? If Jesus is God, we should be full of faith for the future. <laughs> I mean, think about what this is claiming. God himself came into our world. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you know what you're claiming? You're claiming God himself has come into your life. I mean, we are, we are suggesting that we have a relationship with the God of the universe. What in the world do we have to fear? And how can we ever be pessimistic about our future and about change in our lives or in the lives of others? I think sometimes we, we, we get to a place where we go, look, I've always been this way. I'm always going to be this way. You know, my husband or my wife, you know, they've always been this way. Always, and we get pessimistic about the ability to change. But if Jesus is God, there is no sin greater than his grace. If Jesus is God, there's no addiction stronger than his healing presence. If Jesus is God, there's no marital problem that he can't heal. There's no disease too great for him. If Jesus is God, there is no circumstance that can constrain his power. I mean, if Jesus is God, and you truly believe that, and you're not unsinkable, like, it, like it's not really hard to discourage you, then something's wrong with your thinking. If Jesus is God, now, now, if you don't, you know, don't anybody, if you came in here and you're a little discouraged, you know, uh, don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel condemned by that. That's how the de- devil works, you know. He takes some truth and he can't keep you from the truth and, and you get the truth. What he tries to do is make you feel condemned about it. You don't feel condemned about it. I have been this way before, many times. So if you're discouraged or down, just, just change your thinking. Say, wait a second, if Jesus is God, I should be full of faith for the future. I never despair again. If Jesus is God, the only way to respond is extreme obedience. It's the only way. I mean, Timothy Keller points out in one of his pieces, he says, if you read the Gospels, uh, no one had a moderate reaction to Jesus. Have you noticed this? There's only three reactions to Jesus in the Gospels. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were scared of him and ran away. Or they were smitten by him and they gave their lives for him. Nobody had a moderate reaction to Jesus. Now compare that, Keller says, to the average American who likes Jesus. You can't like Jesus. I mean, you can like, you can't just like Jesus. Don't you see? Jesus claimed to be God. If he isn't God, he's the worst megalomaniac in history. And we should all run away from him. But if he is God, everything about your life needs to revolve around him. Everything. 
There is nothing else if Jesus is God. Now, third, if Jesus is God, you know what? He is the model for how to love. I mean, Jesus was in perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past, right? He was in a perfect, loving relationship. He was secure in his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And he didn't create us or love us or save us out of a need for himself. He wasn't trying to satisfy some lack in himself. And so he is the model for us for how to love. See, see, one of the greatest dangers, even in ministry, uh, but just in, just in life, one of the greatest temptations is to serve people or do ministry or love people in order to get our needs met. But that wasn't Jesus' motivation. That wasn't his attitude. His identity was secure in his relationship with the Father, and from that security, he moved out into love. To love other people and the same is true for us we have to get our identity our sense of approval vertically our value our worth has to come from our relationship with the father not people look i, I you know i've been doing pastoral ministry for a long time and for a, a chunk of that time a big chunk a lot of the times you know what i was doing i was doing ministry in order to feel good about myself i, 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 w- I was trying to get people's approval in order to feel i'm okay and you know what happened? Whenever somebody wasn't happy or where there was criticism, do you know what happened? I was devastated. Devastated. Do you know why? Watch this. Because my God wasn't approving of me. My God wasn't justifying me. And anytime you're looking to other people to be what justifies you, that makes you feel okay about, okay, I'm okay to be me, I feel good about myself, and you're getting that from other people instead of God, here's what invariably happens, you will use people. You'll say you're loving them, but you won't really be loving them. But if your relationship with the Father is right, and you're getting your identity, and you're getting your worth, and you're getting your your, your sense of being okay, if you're getting that from the Lord, then here's what happens, you become truly free to love people. To really love them. Man, if I'm giving my, my sense of approval and, and worth and value for my relationship with the Father, guess what I can do? I can love just like Jesus did. And, and how did he love? Well, among other things, you know, Jesus was, was loving other people who didn't love him. He was seeing other people's pain even when he was in pain. He was meeting other people's needs when his needs weren't being met. I mean, think about this for a second. Jesus on the cross was in enormous physical, emotional, and spiritual pain, but he notices the pain of others. On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He, he ministers to a criminal being crucified right next to him. He, he, he takes care of his mom. In John 19, he says to his mom, woman, not that you should call your mom woman, but Jesus, well, Jesus did, so I guess you can. But he says, woman, Here's your son, it's a John, his best friend, and and here's your mom. He's taking care of his mom. Jesus on the cross to the very end is thinking of others. He's not saying, hey, whoa, hey, whoa, hey, time out here. My pain is too, I'm being crucified. My pain is too great. No. He's thinking of other people. And Jesus, mind you, is doing the most important work that has ever been done. The salvation of the entire human race, the redemption of all creation, no one will ever do anything more important than what he did in that moment. And yet, even in the middle of that, he stops and he takes care of a criminal, his mom, and his best friend. Do you know why? He was free to love. Because his relationship was right with the Father. 
See, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but a lot of times kingdom values are the opposite of American values. You should know this if you're thinking about following Jesus. That kingdom values sometimes are the opposite of American. American values say the more important you are, the less you're expected to care for people. Right? I mean, if, if, if this afternoon I jump in my car and the sun is shining, I'm driving down the highway, I've got the sunroof back, and I'm listening to, what if God were one of us, or, or whatever, and I'm driving out and I'm enjoying, and I hit something and I get a flat tire and I pull over and I've got to change my flat, and the president of the United States motorcade comes by at that moment, nobody in this room would expect the president of the United States to help me change my flat tire. Nobody. Not just in this room, in the whole country. He's too important. We, we don't expect him to, 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 you know, reach out to me with a flat tire on the side of the road. We don't expect that. But Jesus said, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. Jesus said, the greater you are, the more serving you are. Man, if Jesus is God, this is how we love. This is how we love. We don't love so we get stuff from people. We love because we're full of the love of the Father, and it's just flowing through us, and I'm good, you know, and I'm good with the Father, and because of that, I get to love you, and if you get mad at me, okay. I can still love you, and it's not going to devastate me because you're not my God. So number one, Jesus was God. Number two, God became human, and I promise this will be quicker. God became, how does that change our attitude? Here, here it is. He was God. And he became human. This is important to, to, to let this in. He took on the human nature. See, being God, he also became human. Verse 7, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, how should that change our attitude? How should that change our mind and how we think? Let me give you some ideas. Here's the first one. If God became human, we now know how he thinks about the physical world. I want you to let that in for a second. The Christian God is the only God for whom matter matters. I should say the Judeo-Christian God, actually. Because see, in a lot of religions and a lot of philosophies, spirit is good, matter is bad. But our God created the material world, and he cared enough for it to come into the physical world himself, and he intends in the end not to destroy it, but to redeem it. I mean, you read Romans 8, you read Revelation 21 and 22, we see there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be redeemed, so our attitude can't be against the material world. We have to care for creation. It's not, it, it, the gospel is not just, hey, one day we're going to escape our physical bodies and to hell with the physical world. No, 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 no. In, even in heaven, we're going to be redeemed. We're going to have resurrected and glorified bodies. That's going to be awesome. Oh, I, my glorified, I am going to be ripped. Glorified, shredded. Babe, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And you know what? Every limitation that we have now will be gone. I mean, I, it, it, speaking of Haiti, 2015, I was in Haiti. We were doing construction. I don't know why I thought I would be good at construction. I don't do it here in America. Why do I think I can do it there? But I messed up my shoulder. That was six years ago. I haven't been able to throw a football since or shoot a basketball, or anything like that since then. I tried to do it left-handed, and I do that, and then my son say, please don't do that, Dad. Because <laughs> it's embarrassing when I throw. I'm not even going to show you. 
you know what? When I get my glorified body, I'll be able to throw football with my son and my grandkids. I don't have any grandkids yet. I don't think, right? No, okay, all right, just make sure. Um, but I will one day. And, 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 here, and here's what I know. Here's what I know. I'm going to throw football with them. I'm going to shoot hoops with them. And I don't want to be left-handed. I can shoot right-handed. Because we're being made new. Listen, if, 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 if God took on human flesh, we know how he feels about the material world. If God became human, we know what he thinks about humanity. I mean, what does God feel about us? He became one of us. God has pronounced his verdict on fallen human nature. He's chosen to redeem it rather than destroy it. The incarnation is God. I think it was Karl Barth who said this. The incarnation is God's great yes to humanity. Because he's forever united himself to us. Forever. I know some of you, see, some of you, the picture you had in your mind was in the incarnation, God came down, he put on human flesh, he put on Jesus' body, but when he was taken off in the ascension, he kind of just peeled it off, you know, kind of like a, like a suit he was wearing, and he just dropped off the human body, and now he's back to just spirit. Oh, no! You read the end of the book of Revelation, he is forever united himself to us. Man, have you ever wondered if you were loved? <laughs> you were, am I loved? Look at what God did for you. And if, and, if, and if God became human, number three, he knows what you're going through. He's been there. He's experienced everything you've experienced. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He was betrayed. He, he knows what it's like to feel alone. You feel alone? He, he knows what that's like. He, he, he knows what it is to be mocked or made fun of. He knows excruciating physical pain. He, know, he was abused. They stripped him naked and nailed him to a tree and, and put him up for everybody to see. There's not a court in this land that wouldn't call that sexual abuse. And some of you know what that is. And Jesus knows how you feel. He knows what that's like. You know, Jesus even had a prayer turned down. Think about that. You're, you know the feeling of praying, asking for something, and, and apparently God says no, or he says not right now, or, you, you know, I think sometimes God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. But at the time, we don't, and so we ask for something, and we don't get it, and we feel turned down. Do you know what? Jesus knows what that feels like. He said, uh, Lord, take this cup. But not my will. Your will be done. He, he wasn't. I mean, that was a real request. Take this car. I, stop the ride. I want to get off. And the father said no. So if, if, you've, had a, if you've had a prayer request that, that got the no answer, Jesus knows what that feels like. And so what? And so he can help you. He's already been there. And you can follow him. He knows. Our friend Stephen Simpson wrote a, a pastoral letter recently, and he told a story about uh, when he was a kid, he went uh, uh, snow skiing for the first time with a, a guy in their fellowship who was a, like, a, I don't know if he's a professional skier, just a really good skier. He skied a lot. And, and so, you know, he taught Stephen a few things, and then they got on the lift to go up the side of the mountain, and as they're going up the mountain, you know, Stephen's getting nervous, you know, he's shaking a little bit, his knees felt like jelly, he said. And, and as he was going up there, his friend, this, this, this older guy, this more uh, accomplished skier, could see that he was nervous, and here's what he said said to him he said look just follow me 
do what I do. Watch what I do. Ski where I ski. When you see my skis move, you move yours. Ski in my tracks. And, and he got to the bottom of the hill just following in the tracks that were laid out before him. He got down and he did all right. See, here's what Stephen says about that. The road ahead of us is tricky and none of us have done this before. But Jesus knows the way. And you know what he says? He says, follow me. Watch what I'm doing. Do what he does. Say what you hear him saying. Walk as he walks. Ski where he skis. If God became human, he knows, not just because he's omniscience and, and, and you know, uh, knows everything. He knows because he's experienced it. And you can come to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Number three, Jesus humbled himself. Very quickly, Jesus humbled himself. So when the God of the universe, get this now, the God of the universe, the God who in the book of Genesis said, let there be and there was. This is the God who in the book of Job said to the ocean, stop right there, and it obeyed him. This is the God who Isaiah says, marches the stars out each night and calls them each by name and number because of his great power, not one of them is missing. That God, when he became human, he wasn't born in a palace to luxury and comfort and fanfare, but in a stable to a questionable birth. (laughs) And in the paradox of all paradoxes, God became a servant. He became obedient to death. Look at what Jesus did. It's the opposite of what we try to do. Look at verse 6. Being in very nature God... He did not regard or consider equality with God something to be grasped. By contrast, what do we do? We aren't equal to God, but what do we do? We grasp after being God. Just the opposite of how he humbled himself. He said he made himself nothing. What do we try to do? We try to make ourselves something. And because he made himself nothing, he was given the name that was above every name. What do we do? We try to make our own name. (laughs) Thereby often lose it. So, so how, how should this change how we think? How should that change our attitude? Remember the context. This is supposed to show us how to think. This is supposed to change our minds. Jesus shows us how to be authentically human. And how is that? Through humility. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Je- this is super important. Jesus lived in absolute dependence on the Father. I mean, he said this, and, and I just, I'm going to give you some scriptures from the Gospel of John. You, you, don't try to look them all up. Just write down the reference, and you can look them up later. But I'll just give them to you. John 5.30, this is Jesus speaking. By myself, I can do nothing. Now, if I just said that verse without telling you it was Jesus who said it, you probably wouldn't think Jesus said that. But he said, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is Jesus. God incarnate. Chapter 6, verse 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John chapter 12, verse 49, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. (laughs) He's 
said, it's not even what I do, it's what I say. I only say what and how the Father tells me to say it. Chapter 14, verse 31. This is pretty clear. I probably should have just led with this. I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is Jesus. I do exactly what the Father commands. So Jesus, in humility, submits to the will of the Father and shows us how to authentically live as humans in dependence on the Father. And the ministry he did, he did not autonomously by his own will. He didn't do it by his own power. He did it by the will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. There you have Father, Son, and Spirit all together right there. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Listen, you guys. If we were as dependent on the Father and as full of the Holy Spirit as Jesus would, we would do things like him. Now, unless anybody, you know, say that I'm saying we are Jesus, I'm not saying we're Jesus. Okay, he was the incarnate son of God, okay? But I'm telling you, he shows us how to live authentically human lives, in dependence on the Father, full of the Holy Spirit, and if we live like that, we would do stuff that Jesus did. And before you call me a heretic, let me just say, I didn't say that, he did. Jesus said, John 14, 12, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing, he will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. <laughs> this is exciting stuff. Had this attitude in you, which was also in Christ. Let this change your mind. Jesus had, as, as Jack Hayford says, I stole this line from him. I was going to just say it and act like I made it up, but that would be a lie. So I'm not lying. Um, Jesus had what Jack Hayford calls, and I quote, a supernatural ministry disciplined by a crucified life. That's powerful. Oh, that's what we want. Isn't that what we want? A supernatural ministry. Man, I want to see signs and wonders. I want to see God. do. And like we sang that song, the greatest miracle is that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, right? I want to see more of those miracles. I want to see my neighbors give their lives to Jesus in radical obedience. I want a supernatural ministry disciplined by a crucified life because it is when you live in complete dependence on the Father that you see the miraculous. And that leads to number four, very quickly, Jesus is Lord. Let's look at the crescendo again. I love these verses. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That statement is both religiously and politically explosive. And dangerous if you believe it. Religiously. It's explosive because what Paul is saying is, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, both in the first century and even now in the 21st century. That one statement blows away a lot of religious conceptions of who God is and what he's like. 
I mean, every idea of God that you ever have needs to be run through the person of Jesus. And if you can't run it through the person of Jesus, you need to do away with it. Because the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is not one revelation amongst a bunch of them. It is the supreme, it is the perfect, it is the complete revelation of what God is like. The Bible is not a flat book. It crescendos. It's all pointing to Jesus. All of it. And that's kind of radical. <laughs> it's religiously radical, but it's also politically radical because in those days, Caesar called himself Lord. Caesar called himself Lord, and he, was inst- he made instructions that you were to refer to him as Lord. But Paul says, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus, which means Caesar isn't. No surprise then that a large portion of his letters were written from prison. <laughs> so how should that change your mind? Jesus, if I say Jesus is Lord, how, how, does that, how, how should that change your attitude? Just this, there is only one name that is above every other name. There is only one name that demands your undying loyalty. Only one. There is only one name that demands your obedience. There is only one name that demands your complete allegiance, your imitation, and your love. And that name is Jesus. That means that every other name that wants to rule your life must bow its knee. Every other would-be Lord that wants to sit on the throne of your life must be deposed. Because the name of Jesus is above every other name. The name of Jesus is above the name America. I, I think we should give allegiance to the United States of America. I do. But, but, but our ultimate allegiance is not to the name America. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is above the name failure. The name of Jesus is above the name of sin. The name of Jesus is above the name of disease, whatever it is, cancer, diabetes, heart disease. The name of Jesus is above addiction. The name of Jesus is greater than abuse. The name of Jesus is greater than trauma or betrayal or abandonment. The name of Jesus is higher than marital problems. The name of Jesus is greater than bad choices you've made in your past. The name of Jesus is greater than mistakes that you've been part of. The name of Jesus is above every other name. It's above the name of evil. It's above the name of Satan. The name of Jesus is above every other name, and every other name must bow its knee. And one day, one day, Every other name is going to confess. Oh, make no mistake about it. Maybe there's other names in your life right now that are trying to act like their Lord. Don't be confused. Don't be deceived. There is one Lord. And there's coming a day that whatever that other name is that's trying to say it's the name, that name is going to bow its knee and it's going to confess with its tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. So have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ.